0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast where we talk about new books and media and communications. I'm your host, Marcy Maserato. With me today is Patrick Bixby, once again. Um, this time, we're going to talk about his book, um, The Unaccompanied Traveler, The Writings of Kathleen M. Murphy. Patrick, welcome back, and thank you for joining us again today.
1: Glad to be back. Thank you for having me.
0: So this is a very unique book, and um, I think the the ultimate question is... Um, Let's just start with who Kathleen M. Murphy is. I think that's a good good place, and then we can dive into all of these really interesting travelogues.
1: Sure. Well, I like to joke that if uh, Indiana Jones was an Irish woman, he would be <laughs> Kathleen M. Murphy. She was she was an adventurer. She she was a, a contemporary of that fictional figure, I suppose. Um, she was born in Ireland at the end of the 19th century and uh, educated alongside some of the notable figures in Irish cultural and political life and wrote some poetry that got some attention. It was Catholic devotional verse, which was a popular genre in Ireland at the time and actually got her attention from uh, the Vatican. She received a prize for her work. Uh, But then in the 1920s and 30s, she began to travel, usually by herself, that's the name of the book, Unaccompanied Traveler, uh, to the four corners of the earth. She went throughout the Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia, through Latin America, North America, uh, above the Arctic Circle, behind the Iron Curtain, and so on and so forth. So she traveled extensively. And um, she did so in uh, a way that was very unique for Irish women at the time. There was not much of a tradition of Irish women traveling solo, and the social expectations in Ireland at the time were very restrictive uh, in regards to women. We can talk about those things all in greater length if we desire. Uh, But then after the war, after the Second World War, she sat down and began to write about her many travels. And for the next 15 years or so, up through the early 1960s, she published uh, a travelogue just about every year in a publication called the Capuchin Annual, which uh, was this giant annual publication, 700 some pages in each edition, uh, which was circulated fairly widely in the US, Ireland, and the UK. Um, But she died in the early 1960s. And people pretty much forgot about her. And that's, that's why I was so interested in her, because she had such a fascinating life and was such a fascinating writer, but her legacy was uh, unacknowledged. So I, I, I felt a kind of responsibility once I discovered her to bring her to the attention of not just scholars, but people interested in travel and adventure more generally.
0: And how did you discover her?
1: Well, I came across uh, an obituary written by Thomas McGreevy, who was the director of the National Gallery in Ireland, also a noted poet, a close friend of Samuel Beckett. So I, I was familiar with his work and, and doing some research uh, related to Samuel Beckett, actually, and stumbled upon this uh, obituary that McGreevy had written about uh, Kathleen Murphy, uh, published in the same journal, in the Capuchin Annual. And it really grabbed my uh, attention and uh, struck a chord in my imagination. And I just had to find out more about her once I had that little uh, crumb of information.
0: And you had briefly mentioned that, for example, it it was unusual for uh, a woman and a Catholic Irish woman to lead the lifestyle that she did that was, you know, by by traveling alone uh, most of the time. Can you dive a little bit more into what the history and what the context was at the time that she was alive and doing these travels and how unusual it was um, for her to be doing that?
1: Well, outbound travel from Ireland generally was a fairly uncommon thing during the period. When people talk about Irish travel writing, especially in the first half of the 20th century, they're usually referring to, to writing about travel in Ireland, whether that's by Irish writers or by outsiders so um, there wasn't much of a tradition of irish outbound travel writing during that period in the so-called long 19th century from the late 18th century through the early 20th century there had been uh a tradition of irish women's travel writing that uh is still underappreciated and uh, largely unacknowledged but there has been some recent scholarship um unearthing some of these works and and bringing our attention back to some of these writers. But the period uh, in which Murphy was active after Irish independence in the early 1920s through uh, the Second World War, the so-called emergency in Ireland. Ireland was neutral during the war and they had this sort of uh, radical understatement about what was going on elsewhere, calling the war the emergency. Um, So Ireland became more and more insular during that period, Uh, and the Irish economy was such that uh, not many folks could afford to travel abroad. Although at the same time, and this is the interesting uh, sort of paradox of the period, Ireland was pioneering the way in uh, overseas or transatlantic air travel, an airport in uh, Shannon, which is still in operation today, might be familiar to folks listening to this podcast, uh, did some of the first transatlantic proving flights in the 30s and 40s. So um, there was increasing access to these new modes of travel, which Kathleen Murphy took advantage of. Um, But most of her contemporaries would have vacationed domestically if they had the means to do so at all. And so she was unique uh, as an Irish woman, sort of Flouting the gender expectations of the Irish Free State, which had actually inscribed in its constitution the uh, place of women as being in the home, taking care of the household and children and so forth. So, this was a a very traditional society in terms of gender roles. And she was a very traditional person in some ways, insofar as she was a devout Catholic, but um, she uh, didn't let that limit her imagination or her. Her wonderlust, which was uh, extensive,
0: and she was a devout Catholic, um, as many Irish women were, um, at, particularly during that time. and And she wrote exclusively, or at least these travelogues were exclusively published in the um, in the Capuchin Annual, um, which was a, a Dublin based magazine, right? And how did um, how did her Catholicism inform? Which you do mention that in the book. Um, but it certainly informed her travels and how she wrote about them.
1: Yeah, well, her perspective was grounded in her faith. There's no doubt about that. And one of the um, idiosyncrasies of her travel, I suppose, is that no matter where she was around the globe, she was always in search of uh, a Catholic mass on Sunday. So whether she was near the Amazon or uh, in in the Middle East or in uh, South Africa, she uh, made it a point every Sunday to find uh, a place to worship with other uh, members of the Catholic faith. So even though she was uh, a very cosmopolitan figure in some ways, uh, very open to other cultures, very interested in other religious faiths, in fact, in other cultural traditions in the, the ruins and uh, sacred sites of other faiths. She was uh, the, the way that I try to come to terms with this kind of duality in her uh, approach to, to travel this deep interest in other cultures, uh, even as she was so firmly grounded in her uh, own faith and her own cultural traditions is to, to call on Anthony Appiah's idea of rooted cosmopolitanism. Um, and rooted cosmopolitanism is, in some sense, an oxymoron. Those terms seem to contradict each other. But the idea is that one can be rooted in a particular community, a particular nation, people, history, and so forth, but still make a cosmopolitan claim to affiliation with a broader transnational or international community. And that, I think, captures quite well the the attitude, the approach, the perspective that Murphy brought to her travels. She was always um, seeking out new experience, contact with uh, otherness, um, whether that was in landscapes or the people that inhabited them. And uh, doing so in a way that was always then filtered through her, her Irishness, her attachment to her little Midlands town where she lived, her attachment to the Catholic faith, of course, her attachment to the, the cultural traditions of her homeland. So, um, of course, all travelers bring something of home with them when they travel, but that was so much a part of, of how she conducted herself on her travels and how she made sense of what she encountered on her travels, that uh, she's a particularly interesting example of this kind of uh, grounded or rooted cosmopolitanism.
0: So I think it's interesting that she was, was writing for the Capuchin Annual. Um, and that's just for my personal experience with uh, my, my father was actually a seminarian with the Capuchins for nine years in southern Brazil. Yeah, so it's um, so for me that's very familiar and very ingrained in um, in my life, and one of the reasons that I, I believe that I'm an academic now, um, simply because of my dad's um, exposure to other cultures and other languages uh, through studying um, with the Capuchins, which in the United States people generally associate, you know, just with the Franciscan friar. So I thought I thought that was very interesting that it was specifically with the this order of of, uh, of Franciscans. Do you know how how was she connected specifically? How did she become connected with this particular publication? And then, as you just mentioned, with her own personality and and seeking out these places, being a cosmopolitan woman while also being a devout Catholic, her audience was also, you know, this conservative middle class readers, but you also mentioned that You know, these readers certainly had kind of like a reaffirmation of their traditional social values, but also possibly, uh, you know, looking at Catholicism from a from a different perspective. So that kind of dichotomy within her readers as well. And those who 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 were um, avid readers of the Capuchin annual publications. Well,
1: I think that in some ways the publication was the perfect venue for her work. Um, because, of course, it was promoting Catholic values in Ireland and to the Irish diaspora in the UK and the United States. Um, and it was a very international publication, in a sense, based in Dublin, filled with advertisements for Dublin-based businesses, um, filled with uh, writings by Dublin-based writers and more broadly in Ireland, but mostly Dublin based. So it was very much centered in the Irish capital, but it had this international audience, at least of the Irish diaspora and the contents of the journal itself was quite international. Uh, It was very much concerned with the um, missionary activities of the Capuchins and the Franciscans more broadly with charity work done overseas, often in Africa and Latin America. So um, it was uh, a kind of cosmopolitan publication in a sense, um, insofar as it promoted a kind of religious cosmopolitanism, uh, akin to the uh, rooted cosmopolitanism that I've uh, alluded to earlier, which was again grounded in a particular cultural tradition out of the Catholic church, but very much outward looking towards other parts of the world. Now, I suppose the darker side of that is that it's associated with missionary and colonial activity. Um, Of course, by the time that uh, Murphy is writing, it's more closely associated with this charity work that I've alluded to. In any case, uh, the journal, as Irish as it was, was also um, very much invested in uh, the fate of peoples elsewhere, very much interested in the developing world. So it was a a window onto those other environments for Irish readers that they wouldn't have found anywhere else, or they wouldn't have found in such detail, I suppose. I've mentioned the, the 700 pages of the annual publication. So there are many articles about these other topics So although Murphy herself was a rather unique figure, her work found uh, a home in that context amongst the writings of priests and nuns, but also of uh, scholars, of artists, of uh, intellectuals of all stripes who... uh, Contributed to this journal and made it really a kind of cultural institution for a very long run. It was published for nearly 50 years by the time its uh, publication came to an end in the late 1970s.
0: And she proclaimed herself to be, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, to be Ireland's super tramp. Why did she pick those terms?
1: Yes, uh, it's it makes me smile whenever I hear <laughs> that self applied label because it's it's on the one hand uh, self aggrandizing that she has this super status as it were someone who has traveled so far and, and for such a long time, um, but the tramp uh, component of the title is a bit self deprecating, um, you know, a, a tramp being someone who, who travels. Uh, or wanders uh, with very little means and is often a kind of outcast in whatever community they find themselves in. But she had actually borrowed that title from uh, a work of uh, travelogue that preceded her. And um, that travelogue uh, articulated a different kind of logic for travel, if you like, and um, a kind of masculine cultural logic that would see one's identity based not so much in where you came from, but where you're going or where you've uh, managed to uh, find yourself on your travels. So this kind of masculine individualism that uh, is celebrated in that work, The, the, the work I'm referring to is the autobiography of a super tramp by uh, W.H. Davies, British writer. Uh, And it was published in 1988, actually with a preface by George Bernard Shaw, by the Irish playwright. And um, Murphy sort of co-ops that title for herself, co-ops that logic of of, um, self-exploration, of uh, the individualizing journey, the journey that makes you who you are. but does so uh, someone who occupies a very different subject position, as uh, we've been describing as an Irish Catholic woman in a society that um, expected its female members to be very much uh, grounded in the home and uh, nurturing uh, the, the children in the home, taking care of the husband, taking care of the household. So... Uh, It's kind of a sly gesture on her part to to adopt that title, um, which places her at a kind of oblique angle from the mainstream of Irish society and uh, makes her uh, different, but in a sort of non-threatening way. That's one of the interesting things about how Murphy presents herself throughout her writings is that although she's doing things that were certainly unconventional, in describing activities that would have been um, very unusual for a person of her station. She does so in a way that is self-deprecating so that it becomes non-threatening. So she's sort of radically reconfiguring what it meant to be a woman in the Irish context, but doing so in a way that um, doesn't uh, give offense to her readership this, largely middle-class, Catholic nationalist readership that was uh, attached to the, the Capuchin annual.
0: Now, you mentioned that she's certainly not alone as a Irish woman travel writer, but that scholars somehow have really kind of largely ignored these women, including Murphy, Uh that, particularly, women that have gone—you know—their writings and their and their journeys that have taken them beyond Ireland to really focus more on the the tourism within Ireland and in the writings related to that. Why? Why is that? Why do you believe that that happened?
1: Well, I think that has a lot to do with the history of Ireland and its relationship to the British Empire. Um, you know, Ireland was a kind of Nearby but semi-exotic destination for uh, British travel writers who went there looking for something they couldn't find at home. Often the motive for travel, of course, but the farther west they went in the island, the farther away from as it were the Industrial Revolution and you know the reach of capitalism they got, and they could find a way of life that was largely disappearing, not just in the uh, UK, but across Europe. So there was this kind of primitivism that was associated with Ireland, which was actually perpetuated by many Irish writers themselves. Insofar as they glommed on to the metropolitan perspectives that came out of London as a way of advancing their careers or giving themselves some kind of discursive authority, Um, But then looked to the west of Ireland as the font of some kind of authentic, primitive way of life that was uh, under threat and and disappearing quickly, but still offered the promise of something that couldn't be found elsewhere.
0: And it looks, I mean, she she is, even by today's standards, she's an extremely well-traveled woman, uh, human being. She's she's traveled extensively, which just that alone, that the level of, of travel is, um, is unusual. And it looks like most of this travel she did when she was already over the age of 50. And it would have cost, certainly it would have been cost prohibitive for most individuals. And it looks like she was able to, to fund that um, based on an inheritance that she received from her, her mother. Is that correct?
1: Right. Her father's pension, as far as my research could reveal, would have been the primary source for her funds. I'm not sure that that quite accounts for how much money it would have cost her to do all of this. Um, and, and maybe here your listeners might be able to help me a little bit because one might imagine the difficulties of researching a Kathleen Murphy in Ireland. It's like researching a John Smith <laughs> in the U.S. Yes. There are many of them. And um, I, I was able to provide a, a fairly detailed biography of this Kathleen Murphy based on records um, from University College Dublin, based on newspaper articles, based on a number of other sources. Um, but I wasn't able to confirm to my satisfaction the Uh, ultimate font of the the money required for this, the the sort of material um, necessities for doing this. Her father would have had, he was a public servant uh, of quite a high rank, worked for quite a long time, would have had a nice pension. So I think that could account for it. It's possible, and this is where a listener might be able to help me, that she was related to the Murphy family of Murphy Stout fame, um, which would have been a source of the kind of funds she needed for this. There are mentions of Kathleen Murphy, who seems to be more of a sort of contemporary, who was affiliated with that family distantly. So that may have been the case, but I, I, I'm not, as a historian, I'm not willing to stand by that claim. So I left it out of the book, at least for now. And, that, and I should mention that one of the reasons that I published this book, as I alluded to earlier, is that I want to draw attention to Kathleen M. Murphy. I want other scholars to pay attention to her. I want general readers to do so as well because I think her writings are entertaining, fascinating, unique in many ways. Um, but insofar as I can bring her to the attention of the, the field of Irish studies to the field of uh, travel writing or mobility studies, and uh, you know other historians who might be better positioned than I have been to, to find out ma- more about her past so that we can really you know begin to understand what made all of this possible besides the, the uh, sort of inherent or internal motivation that's so evident in, in every page of her writing.
0: Yeah, I was definitely very curious about that too, because again, it's, it's, it's a, an enormous amount of travel even today, and, and that would cost a lot of money to be able to do the, the extensive amount of travel that she did, particularly even more so, so many decades ago. Um, and what she describes, there are some really treacherous, even like dangerous places and, and, and travels that she's that she describes so vividly. So, yeah, it's very interesting to kind of think about how did she fund all of this? How did she even get to be able to, to be in the space and doing it into her 80s? Although by that time she was doing, I think, more group tours rather than solo but that's still pretty, <laughs> it's, it's pretty amazing. So I, I um, it was still it's, bouncing it's very around,
1: Bouncing around on the back of a horse cart in the Balkans when she was in her early eighties. So yeah, she was traveling with groups more often, but she, she didn't really temper her enthusiasm or her ambition to see new places and to see them, um, you know, outside the bounds of, of the tourist industry. So it, I think some of this sort of answers itself in a way. She, she traveled by herself often, so there's cost savings there, um, but she traveled um, kind of close to the bone to sort of, um, you know, she, she would hire a driver here and there. She would uh, have help uh, from local guides and so forth, but she didn't travel like, uh, like a tourist. She didn't travel in luxury by any means. So uh, that allowed her to do this as well. She, she did it in a way that would be possible on a limited budget. Even so, as you say, the extent of her travels would have required quite a lot of funding. And of course, she wasn't working during these long stretches of time while she was uh, on the road. She... May have had some income from her writings, although she wasn't very ambitious in that vein. That's something that this uh, uh, obituary that I happened upon initially mentions is that although she did these amazing things and did uh, submit to some public scrutiny by writing about them in this popular journal, she didn't seek out fame. She didn't seek out attention or fortune, for that matter, when she may well have... You know, made something of a sensation of herself if she had publicized her activities more widely, and may have you know funded her travels a little better in the process. But she she chose to to avoid all of that.
0: And she really does have a, a beautiful and unique way of writing that kind of is is captivating because you can, I mean you can tell that she's a poet because her her prose is poetic and and really descriptive in many ways. Um, and can you talk a little bit more about? The language and the things that you have to do to edit, and also perhaps some of the the words and the way that she describes um, certain um, cultures and individuals that she comes across um, that perhaps may be problematic um, in it, when when thinking about it in today today's um, Certainly. when we're looking at the rhetoric of today, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot
1: in that question. I'll see if I can unpack it. <laughs> Um, yes, she she was first and foremost in her writing life a poet, and and I think you're right to suggest that that remains evident even in you know, these works of prose that she's writing later on. Uh, and so her, you know, this is travel writing, which can be a kind of mundane, commercial undertaking depending on the context and the publication. Um, but she's doing it in a way not just informed by this poetic sensibility, and she was kind of a late romantic poet, if you will. She was very much influenced by Shelley and Keats and the likes of them. And uh, you know, translating that sensibility into her own time and place. And you see some of that in, in the travelogues as well. Uh, but she was also a very learned person. I think that's evident on just about every page of this book as well. She researched her travels extensively. She was uh, well versed in archaeology and ancient history and art history, and so forth. So, she brings this wealth of knowledge to her travels, which um, certainly enlivened them for her, and uh, was then able to describe uh, what she was seeing in really detailed, intricate ways. So that you know, many of these passages in the book are examples of ekphrasis, where she's describing architecture or art in ways that uh, really bring them alive, that make them vivid for the reader. So in those ways, her, her writing is incredibly attractive. But of course, as you alluded to in your question, she was also a, a creature of her time, a product of her time. So she brought with her on her travels many of the sort of Eurocentric, ethnic, ethnocentric uh, prejudices that uh, her contemporaries would have shared. And, and that's part of this um, notion of rooted cosmopolitanism that I explore in the in- introduction of the book as well, is that she seeks out different cultures. She's open to other faith traditions. She's looking to learn from other people in other places. But sometimes she is a bit more deprecating of them, a bit more dismissive of them than we might feel comfortable with as contemporary readers. That's on display in some of the the language she uses to describe people from other places, which was the contemporary language. She seems comfortable enough adopting that. She does seem to uh, often adopt a general kind of condescension Uh, to people from outside of Europe. Um, But at other times, and there is this kind of uh, abiding contradiction in her work, at other times she's defensive of those people um, when others are dismissive, dismissive of them. So there's a wonderful scene, for instance, when she's up in the Andes in Peru and she uh, wants to uh, give a ride to, to a few of the indigenous people that she sees on the roadside. They're hitchhiking to get f- to the market or what have you. And her driver, who she's hired for the occasion, doesn't want to pick them up because he says they're too dirty. Well, she says, you know, I've only had a pint of water to wash with every day myself, so I'm in the same condition. Let's pick them up. So she... Um, often, if, if uh, not all the time, overcomes these prejudices uh, and finds some kind of common ground with people around the world. One of the, the mechanisms for that is precisely the Catholic faith. So when she can find a Catholic from whatever culture, from whatever background, from whatever society, they instantly have something in common, something that for her is primary. And that bonds her with people of different ethnicities, people of different uh, geographical backgrounds and so forth. Um, And there's, there's something lovely in that, but it also seems to sort of cancel out their ethnic or cultural or geographical differences. And she can only identify them with them by canceling out those differences rather than really appreciating what makes them different. So her point of view is a highly complex, highly ambivalent in some ways. And I try to sort of unpack that as much as possible in the introduction, and then leave it to the reader to sort of navigate that and to, to see those moments where she seems to overcome the abiding assumptions of her society. And also those moments where she succumbs to them, because there are many of those as well.
0: Yeah, and she has a log where really showcases the extensive travels, like the memorable masses in many lands where it looks like there's um, where it kind of alludes to over 60 places around the world where she's had this, where she's pursued the Catholic ritual specifically. I was super intrigued when it really kind of dives into her seeking mass in the Amazon uh in and in Manaus uh, in Brazil and can you talk uh, more about what did you find in terms of her being in these Catholic rituals like how did she find them in places where Catholicism would seem to just not exist and how do you think that that kind of informed her rituals as she went from one plate one distinctly different place to the next where Catholicism may not have been rooted in that space?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, she's traveling at a time when um, guidebooks weren't available for, for all of her destinations, certainly. Uh, there would have been some, and she would have relied on those to a certain extent, but she needed to be open to conversation, to asking questions, maybe making a fool of herself sometimes with local people in order to you know, navigate the, the difficulties of travel, but especially if she was going to find a mass. Um, so I think it was, you know, word of mouth in many cases that when she arrived in a destination, uh, you know, a few days before a Sunday, she would begin making inquiries about where one would practice mass if if they were going to do it in, in a few days time. And then she would go out of her way, literally, to, to get to those cathedrals or humble little churches or anything in between where she could find uh, the the mass being practiced and where she could be at least for a brief time with other people of her faith.
0: One of the, the, one of them, personally one of my favorite uh, passages that she really talks about is uh, when she (laughs) is uh, in Peru, I believe. And her experience with uh, coca leaves Mm -hmm. (laughs) and where it's it it kind of speaks to her again this kind of duality of being you know an irish catholic woman but then she has such a beautifully poetic way to describe her frustration of basically taking a a stimulant at the night at nighttime where she literally she felt like she could make mountains move And, and she was just so miserable and unhappy because she just, she was just confined to her, uh, to her, to her bedroom. And so, and there's some of these things kind of see, you know, are, are throughout her, her writings. How do you think that that was received by her audience? Was that, do you believe that that was shocking? Did she, was this meant to be just honest recount or was it meant to be provocative? Um, how do you, how do you think that that was the context around these kind of much more um, descriptive, even amusing anecdotes that she had with things that certainly would go beyond the, the modesty of, of a, the, the modesty of, of a Catholic woman in those days?
1: Yeah. Well, that's a great question. And I think that's all um, bound up in how she presents herself to her audience. So uh, in, in the instance that you refer to, she's suffering from altitude sickness up in the Andes, and um, one of the locals gives her some coca leaves to chew on. And surprise, surprise, she can't sleep for two days. Right? Um, she's, she's not acclimatized to the altitude nor to this particular stimulant. Um, and the way that she describes it is self-deprecating. Right? She, you know, she's revealing herself to be foolish in that moment. Um, and there's something disarming about that, right? So in these moments where she's doing something that is quite unusual for a person of her background, she's often um, presenting herself as, you know, a fish out of water, someone who doesn't quite understand what's happening to them, and um, it, it can be difficult sometimes to gauge the degree of irony with which she's presenting herself on those occasions, but. Uh, in that one, uh, you know, she is uh, kind of the, the the hapless traveler, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, that she's, you know, managed to find her way to these different places and to come back alive. Uh, but even Kathleen Murphy can find herself in a situation that she doesn't quite comprehend, that she can't quite control. And I think that, if anything, it builds a bond with her audience. It makes her more accessible, more human, in a sense, insofar as she's fallible and not just this sort of mighty adventurous. So I think she she builds herself a kind of rhetorical out there insofar as she makes fun of herself a bit when she's uh, pre- presenting scenes like that.
0: And a really interesting kind of trilogy is, is the Middle Eastern trilogy where she's traveling through... The Middle East, which is really kind of fascinating to read because it's so different um, for Western readers, and as it kind of progresses, by the time we get to patches of Persia, uh, you make note of, for example, how there there seems to be more condescension in her voice about the peoples that she encounters in this region, and perhaps that's the frustration of, and you know, of homesickness of being away for so long. Um, can you talk about some of the highlights in terms of the, her travels? her extensive travels through the Middle East and perhaps how her simply being female may have not helped her situation within her own travels and and what she was really looking to accomplish um, while she was writing these particular um, travelogues.
1: There's a lot in that question too. Um, So she traveled through the Middle East, as it were, using the Bible as a guidebook right? So she was often seeking out biblical sites um, as a way of bringing her uh, reading of that text to life. So um, that was her main impetus. So she was traveling very much as a Catholic woman in that sense and trying to reconnect with the origins of her faith. Of course, doing this in the uh, first half of the 20th century, she's encountering a world inhabited by people of other faiths, inhabited by uh, social and particularly gender norms that she was not accustomed to. And so uh, those travelogues uh, allow her to sort of expand on her uh, fascination with the origins of her faith by visiting these various sites and describing them again in great detail with vivid language, and, and this immense amount of, of research that she's done, both, of course, in the Bible, but in archaeological sources and so forth. So she's very much a, a woman on a mission in those works. But then she encounters these obstacles um, that were thrown up before her because she was um, a Western woman traveling by herself in these domains. And uh, that meant that there were uh, certain things she couldn't do certain places she wasn't welcome um, and that uh, she uh, was often challenged in ways that i don't think she expected as she was you know setting out on this this mission of hers and i i don't want to make excuses for her because there are times particularly in those travelogues where she lapses into to condescension and this kind of ethnocentric perspective on, um, on the people that she encounters on her travels. But certainly she found herself frustrated by the circumstances and she may well have transferred some of that frustration onto those she encounters. But those are interesting examples of her sort of succumbing to the um, stereotypes about the Middle East to Orientalist discourse. And allowing herself to indulge in some of the tropes of that discourse, um, because she was frustrated by what she encountered as a traveler.
0: And then she, from there, she she moves on. She goes from um, Belgium to Moscow, and she talks about how um, she seems to really be disappointed when she gets to to Moscow. But she also does stop um, in Poland, and she visits uh, Auschwitz which I think in, in some ways really solidifies that she's not a tourist, um, that she really is, in many ways, it's it's like a pilgrimage, right? Where she's going to all these kind of different sites. Um, and can you talk about that particular experience for her moving away from the Middle East and getting further into um, closer back to home into Eastern, Western Europe?
1: Yeah, and that's one of the later travelogues So she's traveling as someone in her late seventies or early eighties at that point. Uh, But even at that advanced age, she's not shying away from um, the potential hazards of travel. She, she wants to see these places that are in some sense off limits. So she goes to Auschwitz, which has since been turned into a kind of tourist attraction as, as, uh, morbid as that may be, but this was, you know, far before that happened. And um, so she's coming to terms with the aftermath of the Second World War. And that whole trip is a kind of coming to terms with the new reality that she uh, and her contemporaries were faced with after the war, because then of course she carries on to Moscow behind the Iron Curtain during the height of the Cold War. And, uh, you know, w- but wants to see for her own eyes what is happening there rather than taking as gospel, so to speak, the, you know, reports in the Western media, the sort of, um, you know, Western uh, view of things, the propaganda, even. Uh, so she's she's very much, a, you know, a seeker, even late in life, trying to see these things through her own eyes so that she can judge them from her own point of view, which we've described in some detail now. And, uh, you know, even if she has to go on a bus with other tourists to do so, even if she uh, you know has to put up with some of the, the indignities of that kind of travel, she's happy enough to do so. If it will allow her access to these uh, sites that she can then judge for herself.
0: Now on all of these really, amazing travelogues that she's written and you had mentioned that certainly you want to really bring her, uh, you know, to introduce her to a new audience and and scholars and historians. And what do you, even to our listeners, what is the one thing that you really want people to take away from her travels and, and perhaps like what would be the ideal for you, um, both personally and academically, to really see what what we to really introducing Murphy back into a, a new audience in 2023 and beyond.
1: Well, if it's just one thing, I suppose it is this notion of a rooted cosmopolitanism, this um, perspective that she brings to her travels that is in some sense a model for for her contemporaries who might follow her, motivated by reading her work in the Capuchin Annual. Um, but I think it's something worth reflecting on for us now in the Divided world that we live in, um, and so she is an example of that of the the advantages or the benefits of moving through the world that way, but then the drawbacks too. Anthony Appiah's idea has not been without its critics, who see that as a kind of uh, way to harness the the benefits or the perceived benefits of cosmopolitanism without having to, to sacrifice one's prejudices, one's um, limitations, one's attachments to their own culture in any significant way. So we see sort of the, the, the light and the dark of rooted cosmopolitanism played out in these uh, amazing travelogues, exemplified by her moving through the world. And uh, I think you know that bears on our understanding of women traveling uh, in the mid-20th century. But I think it still bears on our understanding of what it means to travel now, what it means to come into contact with other cultures, how we should orient ourself, ourselves in relation to other cultures. So um, there's a broader message there. And then there's lots of interesting things for Irish studies and the more particular sorts of issues she's engaged with in relation to Ireland at the time and gender roles and so forth. But I think there is that broader significance as well.
0: And is this, and is she currently talked about in Ireland or in Irish studies or has she been a largely ignored figure in that particular field as well.
1: To my knowledge, there was only one brief article in a reference work about Irish women poets um, that referred to Kathleen Murphy at all prior to my rediscovery of her, if you like it. if you like that, So that was one of my motives to do this, is precisely that she had been ignored. And um, I hope you know, the book was published less than a year ago now, so uh, you know it's still building an audience, I suppose, um, but I hope that um, it will bring more attention to her, but also to other women travelers, Irish women travelers during that period who have been overlooked by scholarship and by the general public. One glimmer of hope in that is that the book was reviewed not very long ago, a month ago or so, in the Irish Times, so... Um, that's you know the broadest reach of uh, publication that you're going to get in the Irish context, and I hope that means that some folks will begin to pay more attention.
0: Yeah, and I hope that this podcast will help with that as well. <laughs> um, I'm Absolutely. all about yeah elevating the Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, it's yes, exactly. And like beyond Ireland, so I no, I think this is so fascinating, wonderful that you've brought her. Um, it's it's just happened way too often where where women have uh, women writers, poets, even uh, women filmmakers from the silent era that have just been largely forgotten. So it's really wonderful to see um, uh, you know seeing these voices in bringing them back into a, a hopefully greater mainstream audience because she really she really does have such a, a unique. Approach to her writing—that's you, you, you feel like you're there. There's nothing boring about her writing at all, Um, which is so. It's such a shame that it's just been largely ignored for so long and kind of lost somewhat to history. And then now, and now she hasn't been. So that's that's well. That
1: was really my motive, as we've said, Um, because she's such a fascinating figure and has been so thoroughly forgotten. I had sort of extra impetus to do this work. This wasn't just about promoting my own point of view or showing how clever I am or whatever else scholars do when they write books. This was um, something bigger than that, at least from my point of view, to bring her back to some kind of attention and so that her legacy can be realized in a way that it hasn't been to this point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's really wonderful. That's a great great way to put it, bringing her legacy Um, which she certainly, certainly should, should have that because it's um, really just such a unique um, story and and writing style. So wonderful. Uh, Well, Patrick will be back with us where we're going to talk about Nietzsche and Irish modernism. So definitely switching gears (laughs) Um, from Mm -hmm. Kathleen Murphy. Um, so that will be the, our, our next episode. So I'm, I'm very excited um, for that. And thank you again for coming back and talking about this, um, wonderful book, uh, Unaccompanied Travel, the writings of Kathleen M. Murphy. Um, thanks so much, Patrick.
1: Thank you so much, Marcia. I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. And thank you all to our listeners for tuning in again until next time. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>